from WNYC Studios. I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, December 11th. Now New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg and your calls, if you're connected to a college, on the resignation of the University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill and other fallout and lessons from the House anti-Semitism hearing last week. Michelle Goldberg has been writing thoughtful columns about speech and anti-Semitism on campus and elsewhere since the October 7th attack. And for years before that, she was a critic of illiberal speech codes enforced by the left even though her own politics are generally of the left. So she grapples with the multi-layered issues of where the line is and should be between free speech and the effects of free speech on students of different backgrounds, whether there is a double standard when it comes to Jewish students, the line between hate speech and political speech, and more. She's written columns since October with headlines like, uh, with war in Israel, the cancel culture debate, comes full circle. Ironically, perhaps she wrote before the hearing about a film screening being canceled by the University of Pennsylvania because it was about young Jews who had become alienated from Zionism. UPenn had withdrawn permission for that film to be shown. Her latest column is called, At a Hearing on Israel, University Presidents Walked into a Trap. Michelle, always good to have you on. Welcome back to WNYC. Hi, Brian. Thank you for having me. Before we get to your assertion of a trap, you wrote this in your column, the anguished and furious reaction of many Jews to that viral clip, that's the clip of the college presidents, is understandable. Jewish people of many different political persuasions have been stunned by the rank anti-Semitism and contempt for Israeli lives that have exploded across campuses where Jewish students have been threatened and in some cases assaulted. Unquote. So can you talk about your own relationship to that first? Have you been stunned by what you would consider rank anti-Semitism that has been brought to light since October 7th, maybe more than you thought existed on college campuses? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, one of the first columns that I wrote after October 7th was about, I think it was about the need for a decent left and the you know, yes, I was shocked by, obviously, I know that there's a lot of sympathy for the Palestinian cause on college campuses and the left in general, and I share that sympathy. I was really stunned by the outright celebration of Hamas among some parts of the left, you know, including the big protest that happened on October 8th, where, you know, people were kind of making light of the massacres at the Nova Music Festival, the um, Black Lives Matter chapter that posted a picture of a paraglider, you know, the sort of adoption of paraglider imagery, again, celebrating the um, celebrating Hamas's assault. There's been, you know, kind of rape denial. There's been attacks. I mean, you could go on and on and on. And yes, I think that this has been tremendously shocking and destabilizing to Jews all over the country, and I think particularly to many left-wing Jews who feel abandoned by people and movements that they thought they were um, allied with. Let's talk about your column and what you characterize as a trap at the hearing. First, let me replay an example of what went viral that drew this astonished reaction from Jews and others. This is Republican upstate New York Congresswoman Liz Stefanik questioning 
Harvard president, Claudine Gay, similar lines of questioning uh, did go to the UPenn president and the MIT president. At Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of antisemitism? I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. When it and is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct, and we do take action. So that's the clip that everybody's heard. And like I say, there were almost the exact same exchange uh, with the president of MIT and the president of UPenn. And Michelle, I'm going to play the clip that you identify in your article as revealing that it was a trap of sorts by Congresswoman Stefanik. Do you want to set it up at all or should I just play it and then we'll talk about it? Sure. Well, well, maybe just play it because I would probably just read um, a quotation. I think it's better for people to hear yeah. it for themselves. Okay. So what I what I will say in advance, listeners, so you can listen for the exact turn that this takes. Stefanik asks Harvard President Claudine Gay the same question about advocating genocide against African Americans that we just heard her ask later about genocide against Jews. Gay appears to start giving the same answer we just heard in that clip, but Stefanik doesn't let her finish, and that's a key. Listen. Dr. Gay, a Harvard student calling for the mass murder of African Americans is not protected free speech at Harvard, correct? Our commitment to it's free speech... It's a yes speech. or no question. Is that corrected? Is that okay for students to call for the mass murder of African Americans at Harvard? Is that protected free speech? Our commitment to free speech It's a yes or no question. Let me ask you this. You are president of Harvard, so I assume you're familiar with the term intifada, correct? I've heard that term, yes. And it goes on from there Mm -hmm. toward the clip we heard earlier. So, Michelle, your argument is Stefanik cut her off because she wasn't going to get the premise for a double standard she was looking for. Can you elaborate? Well, I think it's more than just that. I mean, I think that you have, I think that if you hear the rest of that quote, Stefanik says, you understand that the use of the term intifada in the context of the Israeli-Arab conflict is indeed a call for violent armed resistance against the state of Israel, including violence against civilians and genocide of Jews. And then she says, um, then she asks, will admissions offers be rescinded or any disciplinary action be taken against students or applicants who say from the river to the sea or intifada advocating for the murder of Jews. And so I think it's important to understand before you hear that kind of shocking claim, that shocking exchange where it seems as if the college presidents are waffling on whether calls for Jewish genocide are permitted on college campuses, that Stefanik had already defined kind of as being these very common, although obviously controversial, pro-Palestinian chants, and was sort of trying to get the college administrators to commit to disciplining students who use them. The reason that 
the other example about kind of African-Americans, I think, is important is because I can't tell you the number of times I've heard since this hearing people saying, well, if she had talked, if she had been talking about any other ethnic group or any other religious group, it would the answer would have been obvious. And, you know, that just tells me they didn't hear they didn't listen to the whole hearing, which obviously most people don't. Um, because of course that was that was Stefanik's first question, and so I think that there, you know, people who claim that there has been a double standard on college campuses are correct. People who claim that there was a double standard in the college president's testimony are just flatly wrong. I don't want to soft pedal the double standard because an article in the Times yesterday by your colleague Nick Confessori cited some examples from the same three institutions whose presidents were at the hearing, Harvard, Penn, and MIT. Uh, he writes, quote, all three institutions have in recent years punished or censored speech or conduct that drew anger from the left. In 2019, Harvard revoked a deanship um, after students protested the person's joining the legal team of the former Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. In 2021, MIT canceled a plan scientific lecture by a star geophysicist pointing to his criticism of affirmative action. The University of Pennsylvania's law school is seeking to impose sanctions on a tenured professor there, citing student complaints about her remarks regarding the academic performance of students of color, among other provocations. So so with those examples, um, I guess, and you already said it in, in, in your last answer, you do see double standards in terms of whose speech gets punished, uh, depending on who it seems aimed at? Well, what I think is that there has been a, you know, I've argued with much of the left for the last several years, um, you know, and sometimes I wish I, have, I had emphasized this more, but there was, you know, a reason that I signed the infamous Harper's letter and a reason that I have, tried to speak out. <clears throat> Sometimes I think that the debate over cancel culture has been overwrought and has exaggerated what's happening on college campuses, but there's no question that there has often been a contempt for traditional civil civil libertarian ideas of, you know, free speech including the speech that you despise. And it was sort of always obvious to me that this was going to be where it ended up, in part because the censorship of pro-Palestinian speech is, is nothing new. Um, you know, we have anti-BDS laws on the books, I think in, I believe it's around 35 states right now, that's laws criminalizing or um, prohibiting the um, participation in the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement against Israel. And so, you know, the culture of, it's it's not surprising that it's that Jewish students would demand the same sort of extreme deference and sensitivity that other group that we've been accustomed to providing to other groups and certain sort of assumptions about the way speech is supposed to work in left wing spaces. You know, when people something people will often say is that you know, it's not intent that matters. It's not the way you intended your speech to matter. It's the way it impacted uh, an oppressed person. And so when somebody says, well, you know, that's not, you know, when, when, when Jewish students object to 
the slogan from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And people say that that is not a genocidal slogan or it's not meant, um, it's not, it's not necessarily anti-Semitic. You know, it's understandable that Jewish students will say, well, these aren't the rules that we've been operating under. What I think this whole debacle underscores is that the rules that we've been operating under were problematic. Um, it was always obvious to me that if the left weakened sp free speech protections, those protections would ultimately, the lack of those protections would ultimately come back to bite the left. And I think that that's what we're seeing happen here. Yeah. So before we get to some calls, just to follow up on that briefly, do you disagree with a common notion these days that speech can equal violence, at least in that it can cause a hostile environment for students from whatever targeted group that leaves them less able to learn and succeed than people not targeted? I don't know if that's if those are the same thing. I don't speech equals violence is different than can speech create a hostile environment. And the idea of a hostile environment, I think, is pretty I'm obviously not a lawyer, but I think it's pretty well established in um, civil rights law. I guess the question is what what kind of speech creates a hostile environment? Is it just speech expressing a political idea that you find abhorrent? Is it a speaker coming in who has notions that you consider bigoted? Or is it targeted and persistent harassment? That was the distinction that I think these college presidents were trying to draw, however, inartfully. Now let's take some phone calls. You can imagine our phones are jammed on this. A lot of people writing text messages. You can keep writing texts, even if the phones are full, 212-433-WNYC. And let's start with David in Queens, who says he's a Ph.D. student at Columbia right now. David, you're on WNYC. Thank you for calling in. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. Um, first at the top, I'd like to express my disgust with the New York Times' coverage of the violence against the Palestinian people. There are currently protesters outside of the New York Times as a result of this because we see continued downplaying of the horrific bombing campaign that the Israeli government has initiated. In terms of the question at hand, I'd like to speak to what's going on in Colombia. We have seen the Colombia administration censor pro-Palestinian student groups like uh, Students for Justice in Palestine, Voice for Jewish Peace, and so much of this discourse about the university presidents and about uh, generally the intolerance of the left completely sidesteps the horrific violence that is going on, the horrific violence that the New York Times completely diminishes, and the students and on the ground are just trying to draw attention to. So I hope you and your caller can speak to this, can speak to the real violence, and can stop sidestepping this by just focusing on free speech and what the left needs to do. Because the real issue is how many children are being bombed daily in Palestine, and how much violence is being done by the Israeli state as supported by the United States government. Well, let me let me ask you one follow-up question, David. Can people not be concerned about both things? Obviously, uh, what's going on in Gaza, um, and talk a lot about that and debate that and advocate um, for whatever anybody wants to advocate with respect to that, but also be concerned about new expressions of anti-Semitism on campus since October 7th? If there was any degree of parity between these discussions, I would agree with you, Brian. But at the point at which the United States government continues to send weapons to Israel 
or allow them to daily bomb children, I feel like we're talking about different things. Right. But the question is is not about parity. Does there have to be an equivalent? Of course, it's not equivalent that there's some speech that may be anti-Jewish or otherwise hateful. It's not the equivalent of thousands of people being killed, but it is another real thing. Can you acknowledge that? I, I agree that there is an anti-Semitism problem in the United States. And I agree that this problem goes back to the far-right foundations of the United States and the way in which we continually elevate you know, the violence within both sides of the political spectrum. At the end of the day, though, I feel like we should be having a conversation about stopping the U.S. material support for the Israeli bombing campaign within Gaza and the Israeli occupation of Palestine in general. David, thank you very much for your call. Michelle, what are you thinking listening to David's call? So obviously, you know, I, I don't speak for the New York Times. I am extremely proud to work at the New York Times, and I'm going to disagree with the caller about the New York Times coverage of this war. And, you know, there's obviously a separation between the news side and the opinion side at the Times. The What I actually would agree with him about is that I do think that this whole discussion, even though I've obviously been part of it about free speech and domestic anti-Semitism, while important, you know, which is why I've devoted a lot of attention to it, there is something strange about the way this horrific tragedy um, across the world, the way we've been able to metabolize it into another American culture war debate or another American debate about free speech and cancel culture. And in some ways, that's a more comfortable debate for a lot of us to have than to look clearly at just this daily, unbelievable amount of suffering. It's interesting. For some reason, it's just, you know, unscientific small samples. All our callers seem to be lining up on one side of this. Many of our texters are lining up on the other side of this. That's just for those of you who might be inclined to say you're only taking calls with this point of view <laughs> or you're only reading text messages with that point of view. So so here's one more text um, in the in pursuit of, you know, diversity of point of view. Listen to rights. This is not a free speech issue and was not a free speech question from Stefanik. This is a campus conduct disciplinary issue. It was a softball question intended to lead into other tougher questions sad answers. Do you agree with that much? Sad answers. And in that context, do you think Liz McGill did the right thing by resigning over the weekend? I don't know if she did the right thing by resigning. Um, you know, obviously, I I have not very much insight into campus governance and when someone's position becomes untenable. I do think her resignation is going, and you've already seen her resignation being used to call for new restrictions on pro-Palestinian speech, you know, and not just pro-Palestinian speech, right? Kind of left-wing Jewish speech, as you talked about at the when we first started speaking that, you know, shortly before this, you had the cancellation of this film Israelism, which is a documentary about Jews that have become alienated from Israel and Zionism. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of that. You know, I think that the right lesson from all of this 
should be about the misapplication of campus speech codes, the excesses of ideas about microaggressions, the necessity of free speech for the left. And instead, what we're going to see is an expansion of limitations on speech and her resignation you know, whoever, it's it's hard for me to see how whoever comes next, if they want to keep their job, is not going to take a pretty heavy hand with this stuff. Um, as for it being about student conduct, you know, again, at a private school, there is more latitude to go beyond the First Amendment in circumscribing what students can and can't say. But at the same time, what I think Stefanik was demanding if they had let's say they had answered you know yes of course genocide is you know of course of course calling for genocide is is a violation of student conduct the next question would have been and do you agree that this language about intifada about from the rivers to the sea is a call for genocide and that's really what we're arguing about is whether or not that language should be prohibited. I think a lot of people think that it should be. Um, and that's where I really strongly disagree. Yeah. So let me ask you one very sticky follow up question. And then we're going to be out of time. Um, maybe you'll want to write a column on on exactly this or maybe you have already and I haven't seen it. But is there an issue here of whether it's okay or should be okay, to call for violent revolution, not genocide of a people, but violent revolution by an oppressed people if we accept their status as oppressed. We've had listeners who say, what about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising or the American Revolution or other examples from history? Is that a legitimate debate on campus today or should it be to explicitly debate when violence is justified in political movements by oppressed peoples? I mean, of course, you should be debating when violence is justified for, by political movements, because I don't think, you know, there's there's principled pacifism, but that's not a majority position by any means. And so, yeah, university is precisely where you should be debating these questions. Michelle Goldberg, New York Times columnist. Her latest column, but published before Liz McGill resigned as UPenn president over the weekend, uh, was about that hearing last week being a trap that they walked into. Thank you for joining us, Michelle. Always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.